Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, and welcome to the Assassin's Creed Lorecast. We are so excited to bring you this show. Our podcast is all about unraveling all of your favorite mysteries from the Assassin's Creed games. Each episode, we'll be talking about a different topic in the Assassin's Creed universe. From Pieces of Eden, Solar Flares, and the Isu, to the Hidden Ones, the Order of Ancients, and of course, the Animus, we will seek to uncover it all. So join us, and maybe even take a leap of faith. Welcome to the Assassin's Creed Lorecast. My name is Shelby. You might also know me as She Cup, and we are back today with a character deep dive. But before we get started on that, I'm here with my co-host. Hey, and I'm Austin, also known as Teacup. Yes, yes, you are, and you are indeed the lore master for this show. So I am going to turn it over to you. All right. Well, today we are talking about a character deep dive about none other than Al Maline, who is the mentor of the Levantine Brotherhood, which is what we talked about last week, and is one of the first characters of Assassin's Creed that we're introduced to. We meet him from almost the very beginning. He is the mentor and the person who is giving Altair all his missions and everything like that. But there's a lot that happens before that game even starts. Yes. And I think one of the interesting things about Amwalem is like, unlike Haytham, it's kind of the opposite. He starts as one of the good guys. And then maybe perhaps uh, by the end, he's not that anymore. Um So I think that that is an interesting storyline. I know that I was definitely not expecting the twist of the end of Assassin's Creed 1. So I'm um, excited to um, talk about his early life and story today. Right. So Al-Malim is not his name. It is a title. It is Arabic for the mentor. But that's what we um, call him. He was born as... Rashid Aden Sina, 
or he calls himself Alma Lim, the mentor. So that's how we know. And we kind of learned that when we were talking about the uh, Levantine Brotherhood last week. So today we're kind of diving into his story and where we at. So we know that he was born uh, as Rashid Aden Sana, and he is sent by the mentor of the other brotherhood, and he's sent there to establish the assassin's presence there. Rumors say that he was actually sent there, as we talked about last week, as a rift between him and the current mentor of the assassin brotherhood. And so that's kind of no, we talked about that. There was a rift of ideological logical things we know that he creates then this assassin brotherhood he bans the use of poisons and he starts promising initiates that they will gain paradise upon death if they serve the brotherhood well and so those are some of the changes that he makes so he does that and he establishes that for a good while a couple of years until saladin camps out and finds out about the brotherhood which we talked about and he comes and he sits there and there's this conflict, and we know that this a siege would eventually lead to the capture of Umar Imbalahad and Ahmad Sufyan, who would be captured, and then they would be sent back to Al-Malim, and basically Saladin basically demands Umar's head. Al-Malim agrees, and for the shame, Ahmad would eventually then commit suicide. So while this all happens, Al-Mualim does secure peace with Saladin and lets the assassins continue to live at Masyaf and do all of that. So he kind of starts as this contentious ruler here. He has a lot of issues that come up. He's changing a lot of things. He's doing that. And so I want to talk about Ahmad Sofian because his son Abbas plays a big role in the story in Assassin's Creed Revelation. And there's a reason for this. So Ahmad kills himself in front of Altair as a way to repent, basically, for the fact that it was through his actions and his torture and him revealing stuff that Altair's father was killed. So he kills himself in front of Altair as a way to repent of that. Al-Mualim hears of this and he immediately tells Altair to not tell anyone of this. He then takes Altair and Ahmad's sons Abbas into private training to train them both in the ways of the Assassin's Brotherhood. So you had some thoughts about this scene in our last week's episode, because we did mention it briefly. So I just wanted to know, like, knowing a little more background of what is kind of going on, what are your thoughts right now? It does seem a little bit less calculated now, but it also, it's kind of like, I'm just wondering, because, you know, there's a big rivalry almost between Abbas and Altair. And so I guess I'm mm-hmm. just kind of wondering if Al-Mulim initiated this rivalry and like basically made the two of them kind of compete against one another, whether for, you know, uh, fatherly love or just status or whatever the case may be. Um, it, it kind of seems to me like there may be some of those kinds of things at play here too. Right. And so this is a big thing of, and I didn't, I want to make this really clear. Altair was forbidden from telling a boss as well. Like, so a boss just thinks his father died. He does not know that his father committed suicide. 
and where I was kind of coming from when I learned more about this information was I kind of do agree with you is with the greater context, it seems less calculated. Um, and I think what I and think another point to your point here is that because Almalim tells Altair not to tell Abbas about his father's suicide, I think that, yes, that does seem like immediately creating a rift, like, or a competition of here, because Altair is the one who gets to keep the secrets and is confided in, and Abbas is the one who gets lied to. And so I think from early on, we see that the threads and seeds of that competition, like you were talking about, coming in there. However, you know, Altair might be a hothead. He might, you know, make rash decisions and make foolish decisions, but he's an honorable person. He's an honest person. He wants to do what he thinks is right. He can let his own ego get in his own quest for glory get in his way in his youth, but he is an honorable person, and so he can't keep this secret. Even though he was told not to, he tells the boss anyway. And the boss does not take it well. He basically believes Altair is responsible for the death of his father, and he then tries to kill Altair in a training match. And so Al-Mulim would find this out, and he punishes both assassins by locking them in the castle cells for a period of time. Uh, though after this, he kind of gives more attention to Altair and less to Abbas. And so Altair gets more contracts, he gets more specialized training, he gets more focus from Al-Mulim in that. Anyway, what I was going to say is, like you said, again, we see this, maybe not intentionally by Al-Mulim's part, but there seems to be this growing competition and hostility that gets sown between Altair and Abbas. Yeah, and I mean, to me, by, okay, it's like locking them in the cell, and then immediately Altair gets more contracts and more jobs. It's like, well that's not dissuading the idea for me at all. That's only like more and more proof that, yeah, okay. Al-Mulim played favorites and pitted the two of these men against each other. Right. And so in 1189, the Templars invade Masyaf for another time. This is not the time we see in Assassin's Creed one. They managed to take Al-Mulim prisoner. So there was an assassin named Haras, and he was a former assassin apprentice who was dissatisfied with his slow progress through the assassin ranks. Uh, so he defects to the Templars, you know, not cutting it and goes to the other side. He there goes in there and orders the execution of all assassins that remain in Masyaf after they invade and capture it. However, Amalim is then saved by Altair, who managed to kill Haras. And then walking with Altair, Amalim told him of the pride he felt for his actions and how much the assassin resembled his father before promoting Altair to become a master assassin. So when we meet Altair from the get-go in the first game, he is a master assassin, and it's because he saves Amalim's life during this siege. So this siege is not the siege during Assassin's Creed 1. No. So, okay, here's a, a um, an off-topic question a little bit. How many times has Masyaf been attacked? 
Saladin, this siege, the siege in Assassin's Creed 1, the siege that a boss leads later, the um, siege of the Mongols. That's a lot. That we know of. Right. Potentially even more than that. So um, just lifting that up as, you know, just a general security concern. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that leads in there. And it goes to the point of like, you know, it is like a hundred years ago, the assassin mentor that we talked about, he decides to make them a public entity, just like the Knights Templar. And like you said on that episode, you said that this plays a target on your back. Now people know where to find you. And do that. You know, it's the kind of old thing of why superheroes keep their secret identity secret. It's so that their enemies don't know where to find them or hurt the people that they love or do anything like that. Similar concept. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I mean, obviously, it's it's a, a little bit less dangerous, I think, back in the 1100s than it is today because they don't have like all of this technology that we have today um, that Abstergo has like patented and created and, and whatnot. So I think it's, it's not quite as big of a safety concern in the time period of Al-Mualim and Altair, but still like sieges are very long. They could be very drawn out, you know, um, that's a, a pretty terrible way to die. Cause you, they basically just starve you out. So mm-hmm. it's still not fun. Nope. Well, I think that's like a good stop midway stopping point for our story and we can continue on. And then I have a little bit to share off. And then I have a big discussion question um, based on something that I read on the wiki that I might not necessarily agree with. So tease that. All right. Now it's time for the middle of the show. Okay. Well, let's go to it. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Makose! Shoot! Shoot the flying demon! You weak fool. Get a job. Christina. Who's there? Me. Oh, it's you. I should have known. May I come in? Fine, but only for a minute. A minute is all I need. Indeed. Well, wait. Uh, That came out wrong. So, um, the first thing I have to tell you about is the Patreon and thank you to all of our current patrons. We're so thankful for you all. Um, and this is a reminder that we do have monthly patron chats and they're a lot of fun. We vote on different topics and um, anyone who is at the $20 tier and up can come and join us on those patron chats. But anyone, anyone at any tier of the Patreon can vote on the topics that we choose. So definitely become a patron if you are financially able. And if not, another great way to support us is by 
leaving us ratings and reviews. You can leave us a review with words on um, Apple, and you can also leave us a rating without words or a comment on a specific episode on Spotify. And we do have one to read today, and this one comes from Andrew R., and he commented on the Ezio character deep dive and said, if you're looking to learn more about the Assassin's Creed world or just need to learn more about the games, this is the podcast for you. This podcast has a good balance of banter, deep discussion, and knowledge. Thank you so much, Andrew, for that awesome review. Um, and then the next thing I have to tell you is about my playthrough And, you know, the last time I updated you, I told you that I was currently playing through the Fate of Atlantis DLC, Um, but I did get a little bored. So I stopped playing the Fate of Atlantis DLC and started Valhalla instead. Um, I'm like maybe an hour into the game, like not far at all, like embarrassingly little into the game. So I've just started it. Um kind of working on like getting my crew back and those kinds of things. So still literally at the very, very, very beginning of the game. But I do have a goal of finishing Valhalla before Mirage comes out, which is like two months away. Um, I'm not going to be a completionist on this. Like I'm not concerned about 100%ing this game. If I was, I'm not sure I would be able to complete it before Mirage. So I'm just playing for story potential. So yeah, that's that's my playthrough. Awesome. Um, good luck. Even just trying to play through the story is a big endeavor in Valhalla. I you know I I play through games pretty quickly. You can attest to this. Like I beat Survivor in like two days, and so I typically do that. Valhalla took me a month. Yeah, but you also. Yeah, but you also have 100%ed Valhalla. So I am taking that with like a little bit of a grain of salt. Yeah, that's true. Um, I think you'll be, it'll be hard to resist some of the side activities because I think you'll want to collect all the armors. I don't care about collectibles. Okay. Do you disagree with me on that? I Collectibles are part of like, the experience of Valhalla. They're less like side activities where they are in like Odyssey or the other games. They're more interwoven into stuff. And so I'll be interested to see how you do that. Um, I, it's totally possible to skip over all that, especially if you're playing on the easiest difficulties and you don't need to upgrade your gear and stuff. Um, but yeah. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I will be honest with you, I didn't even know upgrading gear was possible in Odyssey until I was like halfway through the game and I was like, oh, this is how you do this. So it's a little more involved in this one. So you'll see. Okay. Um, okay. Up upgrading is part of a quest that's part of the main story when you first get there. So there's that. But also, you know, I have a lot of stuff from the store in there so you'd have fully upgraded gear from the start anyway and so who knows all right well we'll see what happens i am intrigued currently i already 
am kind of seeing what people are saying about it not feeling like Assassin's Creed, like, oh, it's a good Viking game. I get it. I get it. I do. Um, Especially since I ran up to someone and tried to assassinate them and could not and then died because I didn't know how to do anything. So we'll see. We'll see. (laughs) Yeah. Um, One of the problems is that the button for attack is also the button for assassinate. Gotcha. Yeah, I was like so waiting for the little assassinate button to pop up and it didn't. And then I just like sat there like an idiot because I was like, I don't even know what to do now. So, yeah. Um. So a, a good thing to know, just for your exploration purposes, you unlock the leap of faith animation in the story. So you don't have it right now. And you can't assassinate until you get your hidden blade. Yes, you told me the last one. And uh, I mean, that's that's good to know about the leap of faith, because I am used to Odyssey where I've had um, the ability where you could just jump off whatever you want and you don't get injured. And so the very first, literally the very first uh, viewpoint that I unlocked, I jumped off and I was like, oh, I forgot that I can't do that and like downed all of my health. So I haven't even tried, frankly, to... (laughs) to um jump off regularly yet so we'll see all right well let's Uh, get back into the show malaka 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 unless the legend is a lie you are the man i long to meet renowned master and mentor it's your auditory, the la la la. Prego. Uh, forgive me. I have a hard time remembering that Italian gibberish. I'll see you all at the selection ceremony, ladies. I especially hope you show up. Let me guess. He's rich. All right, so the last thing that we need to know before the events of Assassin's Creed 1 is that in 1190... So this is about just a year after all the stuff with uh, the Templars invading Masyaf. Almalim orders Altair to find a piece of Eden known as the Chalice. Now, we don't know a lot about what it does. We don't know anything like that. So he does this after Altair returns from an assignment. And so Almalim temporarily resides in the stronghold of Alep. It's another assassin stronghold. And while he he's there, his second in command, Harash, sells out the assassin's order to the Templars. Now, given what we know about Al-Malin, this is the second time someone under him has sold out the assassins to the Templar. I can't beg the questions that... Are they actually selling them out to the Templars or is he selling the assassins out to the Templars? Or is Al-Malim intentionally basically recruiting his seconds in command into becoming part of the Templars and then using them to do his dirty work? Right. These are all questions I think we need to ask, given what we know about who he is and what he's doing. Uh, and so 
after this, obviously, like Altair, skilled assassin, he's like, ah, oh, you know, screw this guy. He kills Haras, and then Almalim gives up his search for the chalice, and they relocate to Masiaf. Now, this is the events of Assassin's Creed 1, which I'm not going to go into, but you can go play that game. It is very clunky, so you can also watch a YouTube synopsis of the story if you wanted to do that. But basically what happens is Amalim sends Altair on a mission to Solomon's temple to find a piece of Eden, the apple of Eden. That goes poorly. The Templars attack Masiaf. Almalim punishes Altair and then sends him on a quest to hunt down nine Templars. After Altair does that, it is revealed that Almalim is actually the mentor of the Templar Order, the Grand Master of the Templar Order, as well as mentor of the Assassin Brotherhood. And so Altair goes kill him, fight with the apple, and that's basically the events of Assassin's Creed 1. And so, like we said earlier, given what we know, all these times, these second commands betray Al-Malim. Are they really betraying him? Or is it just a ruse? We don't really know when he becomes a Templar. Or if he's always been a Templar. Even from when he was inducted to the Assassin Brotherhood. My question is just frankly one of logistics. Because how does this man have the time to pull double duty as both the top dog of the Assassins and the Templars at the same time with no one figuring it out and no one asking questions about like, oh, where does this guy go at night? Doesn't he sleep here? Oh, no, he's actually in the Assassin's stronghold. And like, do the Templars know? Like, I I just have so many questions. Right. Well... Robert de Salle tells Altair that he's the Templar Grandmaster. And so I think the Templars did know. And then, but with the Assassins, remember Altair keeps this really tight-knit, or not Altair, Amalim keeps this really tight-knit circle. And he doesn't let people in. He doesn't trust a lot of people. And he almost demands, like, blind obedience loyalty to him and i think that's part of that's what's going on there like i think he has the assassins under lock and key and i think that his obsession with the apple of eden his obsession with control his obsession with this paradise that he preaches almost seems to me that we're still in this kind of order of ancients legacy, this obsession with the Isu that Alfred tries to get rid of. And that's the ideological difference that I think that probably comes into play here is Al-Molim's emphasis on these pieces of Eden and the assassins being like, no, no, that's not what we're here for. You know? I totally see that um, and totally agree that he does keep everything really close to his chest. However, logistically, still, somebody in the Assassins would have had to have noticed, like, this guy is not where he says he is going to be. Or he's leaving at 2 a.m. every Tuesday night for the Templar meeting. Somebody needs to follow him and make sure he's safe. And like, not even from a perspective of, oh, the assassins are suspecting that he's not the person he says he is, but, oh, 
he's going by himself. Somebody needs to protect him because he's our leader. I'm going to take it upon myself to follow him and come in as backup if if he gets into a scrape, basically. I just find it hard to believe no one did that, leading them to find out that he was actually, oh, I'm a Templar. Surprise, surprise. I think he probably did a lot through proxy. I think he probably did a lot through written orders. At least logistically. That's what I would guess. But I think you have a good point. Like, it either speaks to how much control and, like, influence he had on the his followers to, like, tell them to get out and leave him alone and not ask questions. Or... It's a, just a point of like, this logistically doesn't make sense. I totally see kind of where you're coming from with that. So despite his death, because he dies at the end of Assassin's Creed 1, Amalyn's actions do affect the Brotherhood a lot. Uh, his decisions to keep the circumstance of Amon's death secret from a boss and leading to these grudges with Altair, it leads... A boss to attempt to usurp Altair from power of the brother as mentor of the Brotherhood. And part of that is the influence of the Apple. And part of that is his issues with Altair. Both of those combined kind of do that. And especially when he looks at this, Altair's biggest moment with the boss is when he throws Al Molim's body on the pyre and, and is burning it, which we know, as the, you and I know from our studies, that that is a big no-no in a lot of branches of Islam. And especially at this time, it was a big no-no. Because, you know, it was the pagans who burned their bodies. The Abrahamic religions, no, we didn't burn our bodies. Mm -hmm. And so that was a big no-no, big taboo. It, but Altair does it because he's like, I have to make sure that he's actually the one that's dead. And so his takeover results in the death of Altair's son, Seth, uh, his wife, Maria, Malik, who is another assassin that helps Altair in that. And all, almost all of the assassins who were sympathetic towards him, towards Altair, and it leads to the corruption of the Brotherhood and basically sending Altair into exile and depression. So Abbas, Abbas's leadership, when he's doing that, he uses... Al-Malim's treachery as like a justification of his own leadership and corruption because he never betrayed them. But Altair did betray him because he kept the secret from them. He burned Al-Malim's body. He did their thing. Um, but there were many assassins who did believe that Abbas was to blame and saw the same corruption of Al-Malim in a boss. And as we know, if you play Assassin's Creed Revelation, he does die and they take the Brotherhood back. And that's really Al-Malim's character deep dive and his influence. Now, I have a little discussion question that I want to talk about here. And it's something that I read on the wiki. And I will admit the wiki has its flaws because it's written by people. It says that ultimately, despite his betrayal, despite his true allegiances, Al-Malim's actions have a positive legacy on the Assassin's Brotherhood. I'm assuming you vehemently disagree with that since you're bringing it up in this manner. I think I do. 
I see the angle that they're trying to take. Because if it wasn't for Alma Lim's action, Altair would have never taken over and the Brotherhood never would have had its reforms that it did. Mm -hmm. But I just have an issue of placing that responsibility and like credit on Alma Lim's shoulder when it's Altair that really makes that work, that does the legwork of attempting to do that and attempting to put things right. Mm-hmm. And I just think that like it's saying it's kind of like saying of like, oh, look at what much a better place you were in when you went through all of this suffering. You know what I'm saying? Like, they say, like, oh, you went through all the suffering so you could get to this better place. I think it's okay if someone who went through the suffering goes and says that. But it's it's not okay for someone from the outside who didn't experience to say, like, oh, this was used to make your life better. This crappy thing that happened was used to make your life better. Yeah, no, I I don't disagree with that at all. Um, and I I do agree with you. I think it it discounts a lot of the work that Altair does of rebuilding um, the assassins. But I also think it, it completely discredits the power of the assassins as a whole, as an institution, as a group of people, because like they bring themselves back up. They don't let one leader who was a bad leader, who was trying to lead them astray. They don't let that, keep them down forever. They're able to rebuild. Um, whereas I'm frankly not sure that the Templars, if they were in the same position with, you know, a leader who was fully devoted to the assassins, I'm not sure that they would be able to pick up the pieces in the same way that the assassins are able to. No, I think I totally agree with that because there's the famous line from Hatham that says like the Templar order doesn't require any kind of creed or devotion. The only thing that it requires is for the world to be exactly how it is to see like the truth in the Templars ideals. I think that the reason that the assassins keep coming back is that generally as a species, generally as a group of people, we want to cling to hope that things can be better. No matter what your belief system is, no matter where you're coming from, at a basic human instinct level, at least, maybe it's in our conditioning socially, maybe it's something else, but we like to cling to hope that things to be better. It's why I think that the hero's journey themes that come in keep coming in because it is at its core a story of hope of someone who presents as nothing who ends up being great. I think that's something that's core in the human experience. And I think the Assassin's Creed capitalizes that. It's like we can do something because we hope that things don't have to be exactly like they are. Whereas the Templar Order is the world is this way. Let's see how we can benefit the best from it. Which can also be appealing, but isn't as, I don't feel as as integral to the human experience as this clinging for hope is. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, And I mean, I, I, you can call me cheesy if you want to, but I do believe that there is, is something more powerful about hope than there is about the Templar ideology of like, oh, well, you know, people suck and the world sucks. So we're going to do what we can 
to bring it down and make sure we're on top. I think that the story of hope and caring for your neighbors and, you know, caring for the innocent is a much more powerful ideology than that of the Templars. And so I think that that means people want to join the assassins more than they want to join the Templars. I think, and it comes to a point of like the assassins, like ideology is as long as there are humans who are willing to put down and enslave others to get their way, there will be assassins who stand in their way and say no. Mm -hmm. That's kind of at the core there. And I know I say that this is at the core of the assassin ideology for a lot of things, but. Well, there there. there are several things that do make up the assassin ideology three to be exact. So yeah. Yes. But yeah, that's Alim. Um I actually he's probably up there as like one of my least favorite villains. I just really hate the ideology of that we can't achieve peace unless we're being controlled. And that's Alim's ideology of like humanity will never choose peace and i just really hate that kind of ideology and that belief and he's not as interesting as a villain as say crawford steric is or hatham is or you know even uh the spanish governor from black flag whose name i cannot remember at this moment but like yeah you know like it's not as interesting in those aspects. I get that. I um I don't dislike I mean I do dislike him. Um I don't dislike him as a villain specifically. I just kind of wonder how many people were actually surprised by the ending of Assassin's Creed 1? Like, I wonder if it, how many people were able to figure it out. I know I wasn't. Um, so I think that you know, the betrayal predisposes people against him. Yeah, I think I'm trying to remember the first time I ever played Assassin's Creed 1 because I started with 2. And and so I went back to 1 after that. I think that I didn't see the betrayal coming. Yeah, I definitely didn't. Um, I knew that there was something like, I don't like this guy. Like, he's mean to me, but like, he's the leader of this. I don't know. I mean, I was so focused on like, learning the game and getting all the controls down and getting all these assassinations done and like trying to figure out why I can climb on this wall, but not this other wall that looks exactly (laughs) identical to the other wall. Like, you know, so I don't think I, I don't think I was focused enough as a, uh, I would have been 15 in 2007. And so I don't think I was focused enough to be looking at the story. I mean, I played the game as as an adult, as a fully grown human being. So um, I was not I just still didn't get it either. I was also focused on trying to make sure I didn't die every time I turned around or in fighting or whatever. By the end of the game, I was OK at it, but it was it was a struggle, a, a major one. So I totally didn't see it coming either. Right. I mean, Assassin's Creed 1 is one of the only Assassin's Creed games where, and through the whole map, they'll try to kill you for running. Yes. Or they'll try to kill you because you accidentally bumped into them when you were trying to turn a corner instead. 
Yeah, I, I I accidentally bump into people in the games all the time. So I appreciate the later games for not caring. Um, but I was going to add, you know, I think that out of all the games left that deserve a remaster or a remake, Assassin's Creed 1 is the one that deserves it most, for sure. I think I agree with that. I think it's the one that when you play it, it feels the most aged because the Ezio trilogy, while you can tell that it's old, it's pretty smooth in gameplay. Uh, they kind of, they speed up and smooth out a lot of the clunky animations from one. And so I will, I, there's been a lot of speculation that Mirage is kind of a testing ground to see if they want to remaster one. And maybe they will. I think that, a lot of people would play it, especially if, you know, they kind of gave it a legendary edition kind of tune up or if, you know, some of the stuff from there were some like mobile games or handheld games that dealt with Assassin's Creed that had other story arcs in them. And so if they add some of those story arcs in there, add new content, I think a lot of people would buy this game. I would buy that game. I mean, I would buy a simple remastered of Assassin's Creed 1. Yeah, I um but. I have heard that rumor that Mirage is a tester for a remaster, but I kind of disagree with it. I think that I think that they would just release a remaster, like they would just do it because they've remastered so many of the older games already. I I think they know that they would have the market for it. I think that Mirage, if anything, is going to be more of a tester for a full remake of Assassin's Creed One. Um, because I think that that's a bigger endeavor for sure than just a basic remaster would be. So that's my take on it, but I I definitely agree with you. I think it would bring not only new fans, but I think the fans who started with two or started with the newer games and like just could not get the clunkiness, like could not get over it and go back to one. Like I think a lot of those fans would for sure play the game and eat the game up because it's a great game and a great story. Um, so yeah, yeah, for sure. Any last thoughts before we wrap up? Cause that's all I've got. All right, let's wrap it up. All right. Well, Austin, thank you um, as always for doing the research and um, thank you all for listening to this episode of the Assassin's Creed Lorecast. We'll see you next time. listening to the assassin's creed lorecast you can find us on twitter at ac lorecast if you have any lore questions or topics to unpack join our cups podcasting and more discord server it's the best place on the internet you can also support us financially through our patreon find us on patreon.com slash assassin's creed lorecast the assassin's creed lorecast is part of the robots radio network For more information about the Robots Radio Network, join the Discord server via the link in our episode's description. If you enjoyed the show or learned something new today, please subscribe, leave us a review, and join the Patreon. And if you enjoyed our intro and outro music, make sure you give a big thank you to Pipe Man Studios. Thank you, Pipe Man. Thanks again for listening to the Assassin's Creed Lorecast. And always remember, Assassins, stay in the shadows to serve the light.
Hi, I'm Aaron. And I'm Ariel. And we're the hosts of the Legend of Zelda Lorecast, a podcast about all things Legend of Zelda, from Errol to Zora, and all the fun things in between. If you're ready to dive deep and learn more about the Legend of Zelda lore and everything surrounding it, come join us on Legend of Zelda Lorecast. You can find us on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Google, or wherever else you get your podcasts. We hope to see you soon.